From the Cumberland Plateau and the University of the South, this is the Suwannee Review Podcast. This is Spencer Hupp, assistant editor for the Suwannee Review. I spoke with poets Edgar Kunz and Anders Carlson Lee in March of 2019 when their collections Tap Out and The Low Passions, respectively, were debuted. The two poets share some stylistic and biographical affinities, both having received degrees from Vanderbilt University's graduate program in creative writing. Their work is sharp and contemporary, interrogating the dereliction of the American landscape, both natural and suburban, the ravages of the opioid crisis, and the abiding graces of camaraderie. I'd like to begin with the subject of debut. These are these two books, in many ways, your literary debuts, your arrivals to the world of letters in the most public possible way, a disclosure of your own work. Um, the books are, in Edgar's case, Tap Out, and in Anders' case, The Low Passions. How did these books, I suppose, debut themselves to you as a coherent whole? What was what poems were the entry points at which you figured out you might be able to get a book out of these? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it's funny to talk about this process because I think we're so intertwined. We basically wrote the books together. Yeah. You know, we were at Vanderbilt at the same time, living in Nashville, working in coffee shops, in each other's apartments. And, and uh, I feel like Anders basically co-wrote this book. Um, yeah, same here. Yeah, yeah, man. I mean, so it's cool, especially that we're here talking with you now. It feels right. Yeah. You know? Uh, the first poem, I mean, maybe the title poem, Tap Out, I remember writing it and, and feeling it came out kind of all in a rush. I had this idea to write a poem with all the different names of wrestling submission moves. As a kid, I was really into WWF wrestling. Now it's not WWE, right? They oh, right. emphasize how fake it is. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They're like, wait, it. don't do this. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I, I wanted to write a poem about backyard wrestling with childhood friends and I also wanted to get in all the names and the moves and I, as soon as it came out really quickly and, and as soon as it came out of me I was like oh I I, I maybe can do this I've, I've tapped into a way of writing about something and also a subject matter I feel like I might be able to, to expand into a book length thing that was my initial idea the book has ended up being something actually pretty different from my initial conception but that's where it began yeah yeah um, I think for me another uh, a touchstone for me was um the poem dynamite and i think if i'm remembering correctly those our two poems were the same workshop same semester even that's right so tap out we're in a good zone Uh, and i think part of it for me honestly with with dynamite was um i don't know like i usually am a a very organized writer i write at certain times of day i kind of have a schedule that is like honestly a little boring but it helps me be imaginative because i'm not distracted by details of the day and in that case of drafting that piece it was after a night of drinking (laughs) and uh it would it had been a halloween party uh edgar you were there too i'm sure uh and I, i i got home and fell asleep uh, also, to add to this, I'm not much of a drinker, and so I, I had miscalculated how much I could drink, and I had drank a little too much. And so, like, I remember I did this, like, turn into my bed to try to fall asleep, and when I closed my eyes, my body just kept turning. 
Yeah. You know? Yeah. And so anyway, I was like, I was really in a mess the next day. And then weirdly, and it was kind of the day where it's like, this day's just going to be a, a shit show. I'm just going to watch some TV shows or something. And then I suddenly, you know, something kind of came into my head with this, with the dynamite poem, remembering about playing this one game with my brother, which is like the narrative of that poem. And I, it was one of those moments where I was like, well, I guess I'll, I'll sit down and jot some notes on that because it was kind of sticking in my head. And I was like, against my will, sort of deciding like, well, I guess I'll try to write anyway, even though this is a day that I'm not writing. And then it kind of came out of me. It, it, that poem was close to done on a, on a kind of first run. Uh, and I remember part of it was that rush of it coming out that felt a little strange and almost like something I wasn't sure I could trust a little bit, like, oh, how did yeah. this come out? Yeah. And also it was different from a lot of uh, the work I had been drafting uh, before that. Not not that different, but, but different in certain ways. Uh, and... I remember taking it in before class and Edgar read it and I remember being apologetic a little bit, at least in my mind. I don't know what I said to Edgar, but I was thinking like, oh, like read this draft. But I don't know if, you know, I don't know if this is really something that's coming together. And Edgar was like, oh no, this is, this is fucking cool, you know, or whatever. And yeah, it wasn't yeah, done yeah. yet. It wasn't totally done, but it was, but it, was mo- it was close. It, it was, was close. close. And I remember being, yeah. Yeah. And anyway, it was like a, it was like an opening up. Uh, both towards some of the themes of the collection, but it was also an opening up of like thinking about some different styles I could tap into that I hadn't yet uh, used, some techniques I hadn't used. Um, I don't know. Yeah, that was that was a big that was a big kind of like transformative moment. So we we were yeah. we, we were really linking up yeah. in those in those moments. Totally. And yeah, and even even tapping into some of the same anaphoric structures and stuff. Right. I mm. mean, we were we mm. were writing about our childhood at more or less the same time and yeah we're we're in the same swirling energy yeah for that period of, yeah. our, of our writing lives yeah. yeah could i ask you all to read those respective poems in your case on his dynamite and tap out edgar oh sure yeah you want to go first sure cool sure yeah so this is dynamite uh and uh the only thing you might want to know going into this one is uh my parents are both lutheran pastors and they were kind of hippie parents and uh, when my brothers and I were little, they were kind of had this thing where they were like, instead of buying them toys, we'll let them invent games and that will be better for their imaginations. So this one's called Dynamite. My brother hits me hard with a stick, so I whip a choke chain across his face. We're playing a game called Dynamite, where everything you throw is a stick of dynamite, unless it's pine. Pine sticks are rifles, and pine cones are grenades, but everything else is dynamite. I run down the driveway and back behind the garage where we keep the leopard frogs in buckets of water with logs and rock islands. When he comes around the corner, the blood is pouring out of his nose and down his neck, and he has a hammer in his hand. I pick up his favorite frog and say, if you come any closer, I'll squeeze. He tells me I won't. He starts coming closer. I say a hammer isn't dynamite. He reminds me that everything is dynamite. Thank you, Anders. Edgar? Yeah, this is uh, a poem called Tap Out. It's the title poem of the book. We were vicious. Swollen cheekbones, bruised jaws, Forearms chafed raw and weeping, the Boston crab, the Texas cloverleaf, the cross-faced chicken wing. 
One time, Ant wrenched my shoulder so hard I couldn't lift my arm for a week. Another time, Mike's brother Daryl tried a front flip slam off the back steps, landed face first in the dirt, wrist bones shot clear through the skin and gleaming. Mike's dad worked second shift at Pratt, so if we were loud, he'd holler out the bedroom window, but there was nothing he could do to punish us we weren't already doing to each other. And we knew it. Like that time, Daryl showed us his pistol, a twenty-two he lifted from a friend's house. We passed it around, weighing it in our palms. It was heavier than it looked, but it felt good. He put the barrel in his mouth, and when we jumped up, he laughed and laughed. Priceless, he said, red-faced and gasping. You pussies almost wet your pants. We learned new moves, new ways to shock the body into miracles of pain, the figure forelock, the vice grip, every muscle trembling, the tarantula, the camel clutch, mouth pressed against their ear, hissing, tap out, dickhead. You're not getting out of this. You're mine, kid. Tap out and it'll stop. The sharpshooter, the hammerlock, that sour, hot breath in your ear and knowing you won't give in. You won't give him the satisfaction, even when it hurts more than anything, more than your dad's belt blistering your backside, more than the night when Daryl put that gun in his mouth and the sound of it woke the whole block. So much you grit your teeth against the pain, sharp kneecap bearing down on your chest, elbow torqued past its limit, and you swear you could bust out of yourself and look down at your body, helpless and small and trembling. Press your mouth to your own ear and whisper, not you, not you. Thank you, Edgar. There's a lot of traffic in your poems uh, with the first person pronoun, a whole lot of eyes. Um, I'd like to know how much autobiography or personal disclosure is in these poems. For me, as as much as works for the poem, um, I'm happy to, you know, I think I do turn to my life quite a bit as a writer um, and have mined a lot of my own, you know, life events, childhood events, family dynamics, all that kind of stuff, uh, real dialogue from conversations, things like that. Um, but for me, the the limit of, of that effort is just is it like there, the place it cuts off as far as it being... Uh, somehow memoir or somehow nonfiction is just like the second it would be more helpful to the poem to have it be anything else. And if I need to change anything or embellish anything or make things up, I just go right ahead and do that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think, I think I have the same philosophy basically. I, I, every turn I do what's best for the poem. Um, the seed of the poem usually comes out of either my own life or a story that I've heard or, or a friend's experience. Uh, characters are sometimes made up entirely, sometimes amalgams of, of people that I've known or myself plus other people. Uh, I, I, f I have no allegiance to the facts of my life. Uh, I'm trying to get into the poem what it, what it feels like to be alive, which is more interesting to me. I just wrote this essay for, for LitHub that's coming out later this month about this very thing. It's been a funny experience to put out a book because uh, people people in my family, for example, will say, hey, I don't remember it happening like this. And I'll say, oh, it didn't happen like that. This isn't, um, this isn't my memoir, you know? This is, this is a book that's trying to explore the difficult territories of a life. Um, but, the, but the specific details of those territories are not, they don't always align with my life in particular. I think we've both also had the other experience to turn it around where r people from our families have, I know we've talked about this, 
uh, have said, I remember that exactly about <laughs> reading a poem. Yeah, yeah. And then we have to say, oh, I made that up. That's actually not what happened. Yeah. Well, it's how and, memory is so slippery. Right, memory right? is very and, slippery. Yeah. Um, yeah, memory is an active invention. But I think what both of us are basically saying is truth in the sense of trying to attempt to render facts or like somehow a nonfiction whatever, you know, uh, I have no allegiance to that. And uh, the truth in the sense of what feels true or what feels real mm -hmm. to the human experience, mm -hmm. that's the only thing I'm interested in. Yeah. Uh, or the, you know, that's what I'm, what I'm aiming at with the work. But you want it to feel true, <laughs> right? Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm thinking now of something you just said, Edgar, the, yeah. the specific details of the territory of your life. Um, place is so important in your poems. Detail is so important in both of your poems. Um, so I'd like to direct you again to read, um, if I may. Yeah. Um, and let's start with Edgar this time. Could you read Michael? Oh, sure. Yeah, like for example, uh, the neighborhood, one of the neighborhoods I grew up in was right down the street from the Department of Social Services. So the way this poem opens is, is rooted in fact and a lot of what, what follows is rooted in fact but it's not autobiograph autobiographical Michael if we met up in the iced over lot at the neighborhood's edge we were kids in grid of low slung ranches sunk under the lengthening shadows of larch and pine each street slanted toward the state building where our folks collected their checks on the first of each month and if your eyes were glossed with oxys in a week without sleep body a loose frame of copper piping propped under your oversized coat and we stood face to face michael what would be left between us what would remain of tunneling under chain link after the wolsinski house burned down slipping between the brick pallets and front-end loaders looking for something to claim or that july we worked stripping kudzu and poison oak from your side yard on the promise of a few bucks from your dad our long sleeves matted with pine pitch and sweat we found a yellow jacket nest, a paper lantern buried deep in the break. You dared me to hit it with a wiffle ball bat, and I did, and the yellow jacket stitched my chest and arms with fire. When I came back last Christmas and sat on the hard edge of my little brother's twin bed as he showed me how to thumb an imaginary bullet into a handgun with replica etched on the barrel, taught me words like breech block and chamber throat, blowback and primer showed me how to switch off the safety, to keep my finger away from the trigger until I'm ready to pull, the way your brother Daryl took himself out of this world. I thought of you, 13, weighing out nickels in your bedroom at your dad's place, twisting a duchy, licking it shut. You didn't give a shit, but I stuffed a paper towel tube with dryer sheets and we blew our smoke through to hide the smell. All I have of you now is rumor, a few run-ins with the cops for small stuff, petty theft, possession, that you knocked up a girl from Willimantic, that you were faded on cough syrup and drifted into oncoming traffic on 84, limped away with a sprained ankle but otherwise fine. There was a time when I thought I knew what swerves us from disaster, what separates us. All I can do now, Mike, is praise the state cut checks and the baggies of pills. Praise the quick transaction, the no-look pass, twenty twisted into a palm, the Robitussin kiss, the slow drift of the wheel, the soft shoulder. Thank you, Edgar. 
Anders, if you would read Lodestar, please. Yeah, definitely. So, yeah, we were talking about lists of words a little bit with, uh, you know, kind of uh, kind of uh, words kind of ending up driving some of the piece. This poem has some of that sort of like the texture of 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 the language that describes objects uh, comes into the second half of the poem as a kind of propellant forward um, in terms of music and in terms of thought. Lodestar. Nothing you'll find more orphan than the heart, the dim mission of its reptile-eyed insomnia, its nameless drive, its bulging catalytic beat. The night sky wheels with the same fever, as if thrown from a bowler's hand with English on it, Orion, Ursa Minor. You cannot constellate desire any more than you can braid cord from the tongue's sinewed utterance of a name a name hallowed at night into the wind, the wind tethered to the earth like flame to black spruce, quartered and four years dried. Bear grass, monk's hood lichen, Methuselah's beard, old man on the mountain. You take your bearings by a belt of pulsing stars. You turn to reckon with the one that doesn't move. Polaris, dog's tail, Lejestarna, nail, Miss Mar. Thank you, Waters. Reckon is such a good word in that poem. <laughs> right on, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. To reckon with and to reckon by, right? Yeah, right. Two, two right. kind of ways of thinking about that story. That's cool. In both these poems, there becomes something of a motivating force, uh, self-perpetuating even in knowing the names of things and places. Um the familiarity again with the detail of one's territory. Um, and those seem to drive more than many of your poems. How do you prevent or how do you guard against certain poems becoming mere catalogs of detail or names? Yeah, this is something I'm I'm interested in on a few levels. And one thing I think of right away is I went to a lot of wilderness survival schools when I was in my early 20s. And they have a, a teaching style at those schools where they try to encourage the inquiry to continue and the mystery to continue rather than filling in the mystery with fact that will like kind of help, help your imagination actually shut down. And so in those, in those schools, if you are noticing a plant that you don't know the name of or... Uh, a track and you don't recognize what type of animal made the print. Uh, if you say like, oh, what, what type of plant is this? They don't say, you know, if it's just, if it happens to be a, a you know, a buttercup or whatever, they won't, they, the teacher won't say it's a buttercup. They'll say something like, oh, how many petals does it have? Well, it has this many. And then, you know, then they'll say, how many leaves does it have? And are the, the are the leaves toothed or lobed? You know, and then, and they'll keep going and they'll, ha they'll have you take in uh, the plant rather than just name it up front and be actually limited by that name. Mm. And so names names have this power to, on the one hand, totally flatten something and mis misname it, basically. Yeah. You know, you think you know it because you know its name. Yeah. Um, and at the same time, the name takes on power if you do know it. You know, the more you know something, the more the name of that thing means what it's supposed to mean. It has the weight of the thing behind it. And so as a writer, that's kind of a complex thing, right? Because 
if if it, on the one hand you're you're using too much the names of things or the cataloging of details in a way that's going to somehow flatten or somehow oversaturate the reader uh, they might get lost or actually be getting less in you know and kind of like being being trapped away from the thing um, how you strike the balance of that of the kind of like amount of of, of sort of the cataloging of things cataloging of detail uh, and uh, but how you use that technique but avoid it becoming reductive or just saturating is is a tough call yeah I, I don't know you should probably just oh, yeah, yeah it's a yeah. really tough call yeah, yeah I find I mean I, I mostly revise through trimming right and so a lot of what I end up doing is cutting out some of the sort of ecstatic cataloging that I do you know because mm-hmm. I'm mm-hmm. looking at the world and I'm getting excited about what I'm seeing and the names and, and the textures of those names I find really pleasing and they can they can lend your poem a, a specificity and, and, a, and a vividness that you might not otherwise have but I think it is it is tricky too you can't just can't just list stuff and, and hope that the reader is you know willing to go along with right your, with your manic yeah, list right you know? and yeah. I think for me the main way I work on finding the balance is through reading yeah and it's through reading and saying reading aloud re- well no I mean oh. reading other people's work oh sure, sure sure I mean reading other people's work and and noticing if for example if it's a catalog type poem when does the amount of information lose me when am I oversaturated yeah. when is it hitting it just right yeah and and then I try to you know find that in my own work Right. Uh, it is a tough balance. Yeah, and I think you've got to be you've got to be aware of the emotional resonances and, and confluences in a poem too, right? I mean, a place name can can make an emotional landscape the emotional landscape of the poem more complex. You know, I mean, images are are freighted with emotion. Um, it's just a matter of being in control of what emotion mm-hmm. it might be freighted with. You know, based on the way that you're that you're. Uh, characterizing it or where it falls in the poem you know i mean this is all like a very delicate process actually i mean these are ancient impulses in poetry uh it's often proposed that book two of the iliad which is the great catalog was the most uh popularly acclaimed book of the iliad uh in classical athens um because there is an impulse toward the home team, toward one's specific given hometown uh, or home place. Could you all, uh, for a moment, just talk about your places because they feature heavily in these collections? Sure. Yeah, I'm happy to start out. I mean, uh, I grew up in a series of of, uh, working class neighborhoods in New England. My dad, for the first uh, five or six years of my life, was a single father. Um, So he was a a chimney sweep. And then later on, he, he was a handyman. Um, so it was the two of us for, for a while moving between neighborhoods in Massachusetts and Connecticut mostly, um, wherever the next job was going to be, living with various roommates, you know, uh, more or less on, on the road. Uh, and then he married my stepmom, uh, my mom, you know, who, who raised me since I was six. And we uh, then kind of settled into two different places for the first, basically the first half of my childhood. I was in Framingham, Massachusetts. Um, in a big apartment complex and then uh, like right off the highway you know right off route nine uh, pretty isolated and then for the other half of my childhood I was in a town called Manchester Connecticut um, in a in a neighborhood of like 50s brick front ranches uh, 
and uh yeah i mean i grew up i grew up with kids who who were coming up in a similar way as me and and we had our our various you know uh impulses and, and ways of uh getting by and and uh those feature i think pretty prominently in the work yeah yeah, yeah. and so i mean i think you know in a lot of ways edgar and i interestingly enough in a way i think had very different childhoods yeah, right so, and yeah. very very different experiences yeah. uh, i grew up in in minnesota first in northfield uh which is a college town it has saint olaf and carlton my parents were pastors there uh and then when i was 10 we moved up to fargo moorhead where the movie fargo is set right um and my mom was a pastor in fargo and my dad was a pastor in moorhead and th- that move w- uh, was my kind of coming of age moment for sure and it was it's a very jarring violent move for the family it was going from kind of an academic liberal town small town northfield's like 15,000 uh, up to a slightly bigger town uh, but a place that's still kind of small but it was very conservative and very kind of anti-intellectual and in fargo moorhead uh being a pastor's kid uh you know i was kind of like closer to like, you know, being kind of like, you know, a sense, in a sense, an outsider among my friends, because, you know, all of my friends were from blue collar families uh, who had dads who worked in factories, mostly moms who stayed at home. Um, and uh, my parents were kind of like these academic and theological types, uh, theologians. And uh, also, I guess to say, um, living in Fargo-Moorhead it, yeah, it's it's a bleak place. It, there's no, you know, no trees grow there very naturally. It's a clay-rich soil. It's prairie. Uh, the winds are nonstop in the winter. It's negative forty degrees wind chill on a on a regular you know daily basis. Uh, I remember as a kid with the school buses, you couldn't wait outside because you would get frostbite. So the school buses had to stop, and then kids would come out from all the different houses, and you'd run out to the bus. And so getting to school took forever because the school buses would have to stop and wait for like little Sarah, who's like not yeah. dressed yet. And the moms would be waving out the windows. So you're getting up at 4 a.m. Yeah, just to try to yeah, catch exactly. <laughs> and some, sometimes the bus would take a turn and there'd be an eight foot snow dune oh, in front of the bus from how much wind there is. It blows the snow around at a, with incredible power. And so the bus would just have to turn around and go back out the other way. So anyway, it was a bleak place, very extreme winters, and that landscape really painted my imagination. Living on the Red River, which flows north to Hudson Bay, and in the springs, uh, it clogs up like a septic tank uh, because the ice sheets are still frozen in the north and the the water is melting in, in Minnesota and it's trying to flow north and it can't. So there's this effect where the whole city will fill with water, but it'll be like a sunny, calm day. And so it's this eerie type of flood and so I grew up around a lot of, you know, floods and these kind of like bleak uh, landscapes and also a lot of violence. There were there were a lot of murders and, and suicides and kind of like very strange, violent events while I was living there. And uh, it's kind of, I think it's cleaned up a little bit with the oil money coming in because it's in a place where the, 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 the fracking isn't happening at Fargo, but Fargo is receiving, a, you know, it's kind of getting a lot of the money hmm. from, the, from the fracking. And so it's sort of spared the mining, uh, the side of mining that might be more violent or might be a little grittier, uh, but it has more money coming in. So I think it's like a little cleaned up now, but in the 90s, it was a fairly rough place. And I was dealing with the cops on a daily basis as a skater. 
my brother and I were skaters there, and uh, I was arrested when I was 11, um, got in a lot of trouble with the police. And um, yeah, that really that really shaped, shaped my mind, and I, I've written a lot about kind of upper Midwest small towns as a yeah. result. Well, they're not terribly imagined places in the American literary consciousness, where in New England you have immense literary baggage um how does that affect your work edgar knowing that you are in the inheritance in a way of plath or lowell or dickinson or frost sure sure i mean happy to be happy happy for the company yeah not too too shabby but honestly i i uh i i think i'm writing out of a different new england than uh, than a lot of those folks and and a new england that a lot of people don't um know about you know that that doesn't seem to exist for a lot of people you say new england outside of new england especially and people think they know what that means right they're like ah those blue bloods you know there's there's all this money up there and it's true to grow up in a really poor family in new england for example in connecticut uh is a different thing than to grow up in a really poor family in west virginia right i mean the there's a there's a reason why i was able to go to college why i got a pretty decent education in public school you know um, I, I, I lived in a place where money was around. We just didn't have it, right? And we didn't really have access to it. And we lived primarily for, for long stretches of my childhood on state assistance. But the fact of the matter is, Massachusetts and, and Connecticut have pretty excellent state assistance. So we were, we were very poor, but we had food, you know? I mean, we had oil assistance, you know? So we weren't living in a cold house. Um, I, yeah, at the same, so I guess I'm, what I mean is I'm, I'm from a New England that a lot of people don't know about, but I also just by, by having proximity to, to money and to the resources that are available in New England, I had, I, I, it was survivable, you know, and it was, it was uh, transcendable. Speaking of literary inheritance, I will redirect a bit. Um, who are your principal teachers and influences? Uh, so I would start with Mary Cornish. Uh, her book is Red Studio, if you're interested in checking out some poetry. Uh, she was my college professor, my first poetry teacher. And to put it succinctly, I walked into her classroom, 21-year-old, just starting college. I started college a little late, and I was planning to do anthropology. I was really interested in wilderness survival and kind of human evolution stuff. And she, three weeks later, I was I was completely in. I was completely in. I, I was hooked. <laughs> they get you. Um, they get oh you. man, Ma- Mary mm-hmm. really brought poetry uh, uh, to life for me mm-hmm. in a way that I'd never experienced it. I never would have gotten into it in that kind of way without her help. Uh, and she really helped me understand how my imagination worked and what I maybe had to offer, what my imagination can maybe offer people, and that that was valid. And she made me feel that that was valid. And so that was a huge part of my of my life. And then also there I got to work with Bruce Beasley, who's a very interesting poet if people want to check out some of Bruce's work. Uh, Oliver de la Paz and Stan Tag. Those were my four teachers there. And then at Vanderbilt, uh, Mark Jarman was my thesis director, also Edgar's, so oh, yeah. you can talk about yeah, that too. Yeah, uh, sure. Mark was definitely a big influence. We were both pastor's kids, so that was one of the things that we connected over. Um, but also uh, he really helped me uh, well, in a lot of ways, but it helped me start shaping the dramatic monologue sequence of Cousin Josh. Uh, that was something that, that Mark helped and in, in kind of encouraged me and, and helped me see that that had some potential. Uh, and that was important for the book. 
Um, and then yeah, also there, Kate Daniels, Beth Bachman, and Rick Hillis all yeah. were all were you know our professors and yeah. Yeah. offered offered each a different thing. You know, all, all of them. Um, I've also had you know the good luck of working with Avan Jordan at Breadloaf, uh, B. H. Fairchild, and Claudia Emerson at Sewanee conference, as well as Andrew Hudgens and Morris Manning. Uh, and th- those were big influences too to get to work with those people. I think for me especially. Claudia Emerson and B.H. Fairchild was a, a special chance for me uh, to get to work with them. And uh, maybe you should jump in and do teachers too. Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah let's. Yeah. We'll do teachers first, and then we'll talk about influences. Uh, I went to community college before I before I moved on to a four year school and then graduate school. So uh, my first my first experience with poetry was in Steve Strait's classroom at Manchester Community College. Uh, I wanted to be a songwriter. I thought I was a songwriter. You know, I had written a whole record and recorded it and everything. And I'd been a musician th- sort of through my through my teenage years. I was a I was a trumpet player, um, primarily a, a jazz trumpet player, and and traveled with my high school jazz ensemble and jazz combo and competed and stuff. So so I I envisioned myself as a as a musical artist, uh, and I had decided I was going to be. A troubadour, you know, and I was I was writing these songs, and I was like, well, let me take this poetry class, and maybe it'll help me with my lyrics. Uh, and I, I I got hooked immediately. It was a very similar experience. It sounds like to your to your Mary Cornish thing. Uh, Steve Steve was an incredible teacher, and from the jump, you know, was was on me. It was like, hey, you you're, you're doing something cool here. You can do better, and here's how. You know, and yeah. it was it's just first of all, someone believing me, someone someone saying that I had a little bit of talent. And that it was going to take a little bit of hard work to, to get somewhere with it, but I could eventually get somewhere if I persisted, it meant the world to me. It was one of the first times in, in my life that I've been told that, you know. So, uh, so I, yeah, switched to creative writing, transferred to a school where I continued to study creative writing. But Steve, Steve was my first, my first real poetry teacher. Um, and then I, I transferred to uh, to a school in Baltimore and studied with Elizabeth Spires, a really incredible poet. Um, she and Madison Smart Bell are there running a really, a really excellent creative writing program, outsized to the size of the school, to 1,100 student school. Uh, and then we both went to Vanderbilt, you know, studied with with all the folks there. Mark was also my thesis advisor, really formative for me, um, especially pushing pushing my poems structurally, you know, trying to think a little, trying to get me to think a little bit more intentionally about about form. Uh, and then after that, I, I went to Stanford. I mean, I, I had the fellowship, the Stegner Fellowship there. Got to study with Evan Boland, you know, giant Ken Fields. Louise Glick was there. So Simone DiPiro had just retired. And Louise came in two years in a row to teach one of the trimesters. And that was huge. I mean, she, in a, in a lot of ways, uh, she changed the way that I, that I write poems and think about poems. Um, she took one look at me and was like, your hands are way too tight on the wheel, kid. You've got to you've got to let go of some of this control. You know the, the poems need to get wilder, and uh, and here's how I think you should you should start pushing them in that direction. So I owe a lot of the later poems in the book to to her to her instruction. How yeah. about influences? Is there much of a difference, really? Well, yeah, that's a fair point. Uh, I mean, in terms of people that I have have read sort of long term and and come back to and, and read again and again, Claudia Emerson was the first poet contemporary poet that i read and loved i mean i i remember pulling down a copy of late wife uh from my college library and reading it cover to cover maybe 
10, 15 times, you know, I couldn't believe the stuff she was doing with language. And I owe a lot of my style, I think, to that first, that, that first influence. Um, the, the compression and, and the, the imagery, you know, and the, the interest in form in her work. Uh, yeah, so Claudia was, was number one, but then, you know, mid-century folks like uh, Philip Levine, uh, Robert Bly, you know, um, those, those, James Wright, um, those, those folks are, uh, you know, they loom really large for me. And then later folks too, like like Larry Levis, you know, I mean, I, I love his work, way more discursive than the stuff that I, that I tend to write. But, uh, but his wildness is, uh, is really inspiring to me. Yeah, yeah. Um, I would start with uh, Jack Gilbert, although oh, I think... Of course. Yeah, 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 yeah. But, but honestly, yeah. I think for me, I feel like mm, I have a, uh, you know, different imagination than someone like, than someone like Jack Gilbert. Yeah. So I don't think like, my poems necessarily end up showing any signs of, of having been influenced by him necessarily. Maybe, maybe you see it there. But... Um, I love his work, return to his work. You know, as, as a reader, it's like one of my favorites, uh, absolutely. Um, yeah, we were talking about Robert Frost a little earlier. Yeah. It's like, you know, Frost is kind of thought of as, you know, a, kind of like, oh, he was like an American favorite, but it, you know, kind of in a Hallmark sense is kind of like what people tend to think of. Uh, but his work is so much more ambitious and weirder than that. Uh, and he's got, he's got, all you know his blank verse work his longer pieces his dramatic monologues um i i i think there's so much to mine there that a lot of people don't end up getting into with frost because you kind of think oh yeah i know frost's work i i read that in high school or whatever but there's there's so much there uh out out is an amazing poem to me one of my favorites um and let's think uh something more contemporary dorian locks uh, a, a big fan of her work and Master, she's yeah. been an influence for me um, Philip Levine for sure Philip Levine uh, and I owe, owe a lot to him and then you know I also turn to fiction a lot and get influenced mm-hmm. by fiction a lot uh, Marilyn Robinson uh, Flannery O'Connor yeah. uh, a little bit of Cormac McCarthy uh, influence and who else would I mention? Lucia Berlin for someone newer who I, I I've been turned on to more recently. She's incredible. Yeah, yeah, yeah Lucia Berlin yeah, is, yeah. is amazing. A manual for cleaning women, especially, is yeah. just knockout. You hear that a lot among poets. Yeah. Lucia Berlin, there's some quality to her prose that uh, I guess yeah. kind of switches the ignition a little bit in poets. Yeah, I'm I'm the same way, man. You know, I, I read a ton of fiction. Um, well, we're both narrative writers, you I know. know. There's, might, a, there's, yeah. there's a lot of interest yeah. in that for us. Totally. Yeah. I'm just sitting here thinking about books I love now. I mean, recent stuff that I've read, Robert uh, uh, Ross Gay's book, Catalog of Unbashed Gratitude, is just one of the best books of the past 10 years, yeah. as far as I'm concerned. Also, another early influence, uh, Native Guard by Natasha Trethewey. Absolutely. That yeah. Book is, yeah. Weirdly, I've been influenced by a lot of Southern writers. I've never, uh, you know, until I went to Vanderbilt, never lived in the South. Yeah. yeah. I was a New England kid. But, uh the influence is strong. Yeah. I want to talk about literary friendship. Uh, oh, sure. So we're getting to it. Yeah. Um, Anders, you have a poem called Leaving Fargo. It's dedicated to Edgar. Yeah. Could you read that, please? Sure. Yeah, and the uh, part of the backstory there, I mean, I could have dedicated almost any poem in here to Edgar, and it would have made sense. <laughs> uh, you know, his, his fingerprints are on the whole book, but... Um, 
one of the reasons I dedicated this one to him is because we were we were going to a, a cafe one day in, in Nashville, actually making like a the longer journey to a cafe we didn't go to as much. Yeah, where were we going? Uh, Crema. Which cafe? Crema. Oh, oh, okay. yeah, oh yeah, yeah. And so we were you know chatting a bunch on the way there. I, I think we biked. Yeah, it was a bike day. Yeah, yeah. And uh, we were chatting a bunch on the way there, and we were talking about our hometowns, and we were talking about kind of teenage angst and teenage experiences. Mm-hmm. And Edgar said something like, oh, like, have you written much about kind of the teen years? And I was kind of like, oh, like, I don't know if I really have written as much about my teen years. Uh, I'd written more about, like, my earlier childhood and then about, like, my, my 20s. And we got to the cafe, and I started drafting this piece. Yeah. Uh, so this is very much like a teenage poem uh, and, and it was taking place in 1997. So Operation Desert Storm was kind of uh, very fresh in people's, in people's minds at that time. Um, anything else you'd want to know? I'll just jump into it. Leaving Fargo. We crammed in McAlpine's Pulse and drove west out of Fargo to see the train wreck. Late summer and the heat moaning from the radiator smoke gushing from the seams in the hood, all of us snake-biting McAlpine's neck when he admitted he'd thinned the coolant to try to make it stretch. We passed Whale Awash, where the volleyball girls held up cardboard signs, did barefoot high kicks in bikinis, offering $5 specials to raise funds for their team. We passed M&H Gas, Ironclad, Rickert's Bar, the Hardy's parking lot where the Moorhead kids lounged on the hoods of their cars, But we didn't flick them off because we knew about Garcia, who'd just hung himself in his father's closet with a belt. Skateland, Hebron brick. My mother's church on division boarded up and watermarked at the windows, signed by the height of the flood in the spring. Indian triumph, Kurt's lock and key. Ameristeel where McAlpine worked with his uncle on weekends, the bums asleep on layers of newspaper in the bushes beside Bell State Bank. Tintmasters. Dakota Electric. The rubble and brick where last winter a lady carved a swastika into her wrist before burning down her own fortune teller business. The old folks' home where wheelchaired vets waved out the windows at whoever came by. Bozak flicked them off and we all laughed. We passed the last trees on the edge of town and gunned down a county road through the ripening beets cranking up the windows and blasting the heat as McAlpine pushed the pulse above 90. We called this Operation Desert Storm, the North Dakota roads so flat and straight you could hit 95 before the car started to quiver. McAlpine screaming into the windshield, Apidesi, Apidesi, all of us peeling off our shirts and wearing them like turbans. As we hit 99, I dug a onesie from the glove box and packed it and held it to McAlpine's trembling lips. This one's for Garcia, he said. We passed 100. Out in the fields, the heat-lifted kinks of cargo came into view. It was the wreck we were looking for. A junker from Wolf Point, Williston, Minot, Grand Forks. A local. Low priority. Loaded with hoppers, tankers, Canadian grainers, gondolas hauling scrap metal to Duluth. Somehow the clay and rain had fucked up the rails and caused the freight to buckle at the couplers. But nobody had died. The conductor and his crew rolled on down the line, drifting in the engine unit, watching in the rear view as the mile-long train turtled into the sugar beets and began to pile. Thank you, Anders. It's interesting that what a conversation 
can provoke, and I suppose that might sound obvious, but um, you say that so many of these poems are either in conversation with one another or uh, there's a kind of intellectual collaboration going on in these books between uh, Tap Out and The Love Passions. Could y'all elaborate more on that? Yeah, I mean, maybe maybe one quick story to share to get into that is uh, when I visited Vanderbilt to see if I wanted to come to the MFA, Edgar was already there. He was he was one year ahead of me, and uh, I we we we'd done a little emailing. We'd gotten on the phone before I got there, and there was a kind of sense weirdly right away that we were like yeah. hitting it off. Yeah, yeah. And that was unclear why that was happening, but it was like, oh, okay, this this dude seems cool. We were exchanging music right away. We right? were exchanging right. some music yeah. right away. Yeah, yeah, some recommendations. And I got into town, Edgar picked me up at the airport, and I was staying with him for the recruitment weekend at his house. And basically over that weekend, uh, we ended up basically reading uh, our poems to each other and kind of kind of checking out what we were up to with with each other's work and there was a sense like very right away like a spark kind of feeling that it was like oh we could really kind of get into it together and there was a sense that there was something there that we were like sharing and that we might be able to like augment these ideas with each other and for me you know, when I was leaving the visit, that like that was it. I mean, you know, Vanderbilt was cool, but I was coming to work with Edgar yeah. basically. Yeah. You know, that was the vibe, and yeah. um, and I was. I remember feeling nervous too. Like I was like, what if, what if I moved to Nashville, and like somehow it's like a little different than I was imagining, or we don't really hit it off in yeah. in reality or something. And uh-huh. uh, but then you know, then we we got together on the on working on poems, and it was like totally rocketing off you know it's like uh it was a big launch for us both i think imaginatively oh definitely yeah and i think both of us have a similar attitude toward like collaboration in the sense of just offering up ideas totally getting in there and changing each other's lines when when that feels appropriate um kind of basically being very comfortable with the idea that we're basically co-writing yeah and uh i don't think either of us has ever really felt like whoa don't step on my toes like i don't think we don't we don't really have that attitude no i mean i you you always seem to know exactly what i'm trying to do on the page yeah, you right. know what i mean and so all your suggestions are 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 right in line with what i'm hoping is happening and and you know are helping the, helping the poem work a little bit more smoothly or, or more efficiently or or changing the direction of it slightly you know i mean the, it's yeah it's it's hard to overstate you know i mean it's yeah. it's it totally changed my life totally changed my writing life you know our friendship is yeah, one, of, the most, one yeah. of the most important things to me um <laughs> we and we've we've done a pretty good job of keeping up with it too when we were living in the same space we were we were you know walking together to the same coffee shops or, or you know going to with the other's house or whatever and, and working in person and uh we still get on the phone constantly you yeah. know when i've got a new draft of something my first thought is let me get on the phone with honors and see what he thinks you know i mean i, I run a lot of things past you yeah um, the distance makes it a little more a little more difficult, but uh, but we're keeping up with it pretty good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and uh, yeah, I guess just you know, I, I don't really know what it's like for other writers, but I think for us, we've just somehow had a bond that hasn't felt threatening. It's felt just very, uh, yeah. it's just felt very creative, and it's felt very uplifting yeah. and meaningful, and like, and I think we've both favored the poems yeah. over anything. Yeah. Where you know, let's say it's Edgar's poem, 
I don't necessarily care if you know even if I'm like trying to like get a line going for you it has no I have I have no thought about like whether or not this is like my authorship or yours it's about yeah. whether this poem could come to life yeah yeah oh totally and I think yeah. both of us have felt that way yeah yeah exactly because I'm a voyeur um and I must is there <laughs> any real competition at any times between the two of you or is it purely love and collaboration Oh, I feel a sense of I feel I feel a sense of pushing each other for sure, right? We've both we've both been lucky to have things come our way as a result of the poems and and it's just been it's been really good energy the whole time, you know. But I I work harder because I know that you're going to see my work and we're going to share things right. together, you right. know. Um and that's yeah, that's <laughs> I think is <laughs> I think I think there is a form of healthy competition for us maybe, sure. but it's it's of it's of the healthiest degree that I've experienced in life. Yeah. My relationship with Edgar, yeah. for sure. Yeah. Just where it feels so about something more than the two of us and about the work that's becoming nice. good uh and about about favoring aesthetics and art over, you know, the kind of petty issues of like, you know, who who did what or who said what. Yeah, totally. And I think we've yeah. just you know, loved each other more than that, you know, more than being willing to get caught up in that. Yeah. 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 That's incredibly heartening, y'all. Um, <laughs> and, uh, yeah. and bodes well for the world of letters that y'all are in it. Um, Thank you. Yeah. Uh, we're going to end on poems because those are important uh, and they're why you're here. Um, Edgar, I'd like for you to read... Uh, when Charlie pulls the Colorado over. Sure. And Anders, if you could read Moorcroft, please. When Charlie pulls the Colorado over. When Charlie pulls the Colorado over and tells me to fuck off. Says I can ride the bed with the bales or hitch back to Parkton with whoever will stop, but God help him, he don't give a damn if no one does. I pull the latch and stumble down onto the sun-scrubbed shoulder. The passenger door hangs open like a jaw. Hinge locked up and squealing in the Chesapeake wind that loosens hay strands fistfuls at a time from the twine tied stacks, scatters them into traffic. I run my thumb along the mismatched quarter panel, thinking about a woman I loved who called that morning to say she's marrying a fighter pilot, bought a place outside Jerusalem, that she's learned to say his ways are ways of pleasantness, and she's chosen to cover her hair and the freckled skin of her arms. Halfway between Hunt Valley and Hackensack, the Econolod sign pulsing behind the curtain, the sounds we make mixing with the branches, lashing the window, the rain, the big rigs on the interstate, the kind of love that makes you forget, she says, slipping from the sheets. And whatever seized her then, whatever swept her toward those distances, the Abrahamic plains, a language she'd never spoken but is learning now to speak, is what lifts me, one foot on the bumper, good arm levering my body into the bed. What sets me down among the wind-torn bales pushes me upstate toward Moncton, Hereford, New Freedom, the drop-seed prairies, the runoff ponds and feed cornfields. What asks me to try and track one straw, to hold it with my eyes for more than a second, and fail, then choose another, and fail again, Charlie leaning on the horn as they vault into the wind. Others. Yeah, and I'll read Moorcroft. Um, there's a, a narrative through the book about uh, experience of staying in the homes of strangers while traveling and kind of experiencing 
both uh, kind of profound hospitality and yet also um, a kind of like terror of identity, a terror of where do I fit in this? And also, um, you know, no one's a simple person. So when you're meeting strangers on the road, you, you, know, you don't really know what you're getting into. This one's called Moorcroft. You gave me a ride when I was lost in Wyoming, took me to your home, showed me your gun collection. You had to go shoulder deep through the clothes in the closet to reach. They were old and unloaded, you told me, and you didn't shoot them anymore, just oiled them and kept them perfectly clean. I was careful not to flinch as I watched the double barrel raise and train on my face, the tooth hole you flashed and the grin after, the spasm in your hands as you swung the gun and pointed it at yourself to show evenness. You told me about doing five years for murder, asked if I would have done anything different, finding a grown man raping my six-year-old niece. I wouldn't change it, you said. I wouldn't take it back. You patted your heart with your hand. Family is family, you whispered, as you brought me clean sheets from my bed. Thank you, Andres. Thank you both immensely for joining me. Um, it is a great pleasure to listen to you speak. The books are debuts from Edgar Kunz, Tap Out, and from Anders Carlson Wee, The Low Passions. Again, thank you very much. Yeah, yeah thank you. It's been lovely, man. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, it's a real pleasure. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Cheers. Thank you for listening to the Swanee Review Podcast. If you like what you heard, the best way to support the Swanee Review, America's oldest continuously published literary quarterly, is by purchasing a print and online subscription at www.theswanereview.com. To discover what's happening at the Review, visit our website or follow us on our Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook pages at The Swanee Review. Special thanks to our producer, Helen Wynana, and sound engineer Alex Martin, with music by Annie Bowers. Until next time, this is The Swanee Review, new since 1892.